these top NFT projects, they have the makings of becoming the most powerful consumer brands of the future across media, fashion, entertainment, various forms of IP. And they have created these committed, exclusive communities, right? And now it's like, where do you go from here? How do you scale exclusivity and scarcity? This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by SafePal and AngelBlock. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. What is up? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and we're listening and watching to another epic episode of Untold Stories. We're together twice a week. We get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, OGs, those who are building out the technologies, those who are running the businesses, understanding the regulations, understanding why we need transparency, building out some of the coolest things, talking about some fun stories in the past to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we sit right now and where we're going. We saw this morning that uh, Core Scientific, a big Bitcoin miner, is having some, some, some fears about bankruptcy. We're seeing a lot of uh, high-level discussions with uh, folks like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX and different regulatory bodies about how DeFi and things should be regulated. What we do know is that the next six months are pivotal to our whole industry. New regulations are going to come out, a lot of clarity. And once that happens, new products and new businesses that are going to use blockchain and crypto for the mass world, for everyone, are finally going to come out and they're going to launch because they have all the clarification that they need to finally do it. And so there's a lot of different like... Uh, uh, a lot of people ask are asking like, what, who, where, what are these different things? What's going to be coming out? Uh, obviously, no one really knows. But to talk to us about her journey and how she got into the space, what she's done in the past, and why she left all that to, to build uh, what she's building now is Tara Fung. Tara, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Thank you so much for having me. You are the co-founder and CEO of CodeCreate. Uh, you previously, when you first got into the into the industry, uh, you were the chief revenue officer of Alto, a huge crypto IRA and digital asset IRA custodian. Uh, you were the chief commercial officer for Common Bond, which was when I was doing the research was a really cool uh, company doing uh, green lending. Uh, you're a graduate you're a graduate of Harvard Business School and the University of South Carolina. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with with you know how you got into in, in crypto IRA and your first you know foray into there? Do you want to talk about you know why you believe that Web three is going to completely change everything we know about the internet as it is today? Do you want to talk about how your weekend was? <laughs> I mean, we can talk about. I think everyone's story into crypto is unique and interesting, and there are a lot of parallels across stories. So I'm happy to start there and share why I'm choosing to spend my time, which really makes up my life in this area. Absolutely. Please. How, I mean, where was the, do you remember the first instance where you actually said to yourself, okay, I've heard of this crypto or Bitcoin thing, but I may want to work in it. Yeah, I do. Because um, I remember when I first heard about it, it was actually during grad school. Um, and so relatively late, like 2016, 2017, and I put Bitcoin and crypto in this category of sounds interesting, 
but it's a really deep well and I don't have time for that. Like, I don't have time to go all the way down that well and figure out why it matters, what it is. Like, I've got school right now. I'm trying to figure out what my next job is. And so I had it in my mind, but it was similar to me as healthcare. Like, I don't really need to understand it yet. <laughs> I'm not using it yet. So I'm just going to put it on a shelf. And then I was forced to deal with it because I joined a company where we enabled individuals to invest in alternative assets um, using their retirement funds. So invest into venture deals, invest into private equity, invest into private real estate, and invest into crypto. And I don't invest in things I don't understand. Like, I think that's a generally a good premise. Invest in the things you know, and I wasn't going to be going out there shilling, hey, you should use your retirement account to invest in crypto if I wasn't doing it myself and I didn't understand the role it could play in a portfolio. And so I was realized, you know what? It's finally time. I need to understand this. And I'm just going to go asset by asset and start with Bitcoin and then move on to Ethereum and so on and so forth. And it quickly went for me from, wow, you know, I can see the role that a small allocation of BTC or ETH or SOL would play in a portfolio for diversification purposes to, holy smokes, blockchains are going to fundamentally change the world, way the world works and what is possible. And growing up, like you mentioned, I went to Harvard Business School. A lot of people that go there to HBS it's a proud moment to say, I started a lemonade stand when I was five years old, except maybe they actually had like a real business. And yeah. I sold my first business when I was nine. That wasn't me. Like I was the kid who was reading books all day. I was the one who went to my mom when I was 10 years old crying because I realized I hadn't learned a second language yet. And I read somewhere that at the age of 11, your mind starts processing languages differently. Like I was a weird, curious kid who just wanted to figure out how the world works and travel and get exposure. And so that's what led me to business school. Um, and it's also what led me to crypto, because as soon as I realized blockchains are changing the way the world works and what's possible, I knew I had to be in this space and it couldn't be tangential anymore. It couldn't be like, oh, we facilitate investments in two. It was like, I want to be building all day, every day in this space because I want to be one of the people who knows why it works this way and how it came to be and can figure out whether or not this can have mass market appeal and potential and actually reach what I think is possible. And so that was, you know, I started down the rabbit hole a few years ago, but I decided formally, like I remember the moment I was at a, I was at this conference um, and we were talking about tokenized real world assets actually. And it was there that I made the decision in my head. The next thing I do is going to be founding a company in the web three space. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to put that out into the world. I'm going to start telling people, I'm going to try to manifest that destiny and just get through my imposter syndrome and see what comes of it. And now a year and a half later, here we are. And it's been an incredible ride. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> So you, and it's cool because you have the, the, the uh, additional benefit of working in like, not finance, but like crypto finance and also finance too. Yeah. Uh, understanding it at a deep level, of course, but now you're moving over to like the cultural asset layer side yeah. of the NFTs, the web three, the, the fun stuff is like people call it, you know, <laughs> co-create, even the name sounds fun. Yeah. But, um, going back to, to the IRA side, cause I'm, and I'm curious uh about that the past few weeks i've been having guests and we've been talking about the lack the 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 
that they want more clarification on regulations when it comes to things mm. like institutional money, custodializing, um, um, securitization of assets, of real world assets that you said before, all these different type of things. Going back to like the IRA side, I mean, that's, you talk about like hundreds of billions and trillions of, of investable money. Yeah. Why aren't they moving? Oh, why isn't institutional money still moving over? Is it still that like lack of regulation issue? Yeah, well, so it's a great question. IRAs, retirement accounts represent, um, and this is, you know, as of March, April this year. So I haven't looked at it post retraction, but roughly $30 trillion. Oh my God. I mean, it's massive, right? It's massive. And it's, these are all individuals funds, right? And so granted, there are institutional investors who manage this on behalf of individuals. But when it comes to IRAs, that's an individual retirement account. Someone is choosing where to invest that money. Most of it is in target date funds or mutual funds or various ETFs that are comprised of the same, call it four or 500 stocks, (laughs) right? And so you just don't have a ton of diversification. And when you think about long-term investing, you really need to be have a diversified portfolio that is able to to weather, you know, 30, 40 years and has uncorrelated assets in it. And one of the things that was fascinating to me when I got into and started working at Alto was when you look at the professional investors, the institutional investors, those investors of endowments, et cetera, 20 to 50% of their portfolio are allocated to alternative assets, non-public um, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. And when you look at individual investors, people like you and me, it's like 2 to 5%. And what's the difference there? There's some difference in access, right? So many alternative investment opportunities are only available to accredited investors or qualified purchasers, i.e. people that are that make a lot of money or are rich. <laughs> right? But there are more and more opportunities that are available to anyone. And I think it's it's still about access, but more from a friction standpoint and a knowledge standpoint. Um, and that's changing. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot more of explosion of private investment opportunities through changes in regulation and, and legislation that came out um, with the Jobs Act, where now anyone can invest oh, yeah. in private companies, right? Um, if they're offered under certain uh, under certain exemptions as securities. And crypto to date, and this probably gets to a whole other issue, crypto to date has not been treated as a security. It's been treated as property under IRS guidelines, and therefore you don't need to be an accredited investor because it's not a private security to invest in it. And you also, there are different rules and regulations around investing in property versus securities. And so that's what's enabled, I think, a lot of individuals to get into it. Um, But it's still, in general, private markets. I think individual investors need more exposure to private markets in order to come up with diversified portfolios that can weather these types of scenarios we're seeing right now, these types of macro environments or in um, instances where we're seeing huge retractions um, in the top, you know, the S&P 500 um, firms. And so I'm hopeful that it's changing. I think the awareness is changing. But it's also something that I don't encourage people to, as I said, invest in things they don't know. And if you don't know, it's it becomes gambling, not investing. That's fine as long as you realize that's what you're doing. Um, I just think people should be eyes wide open about it. There's there's so much uh, inside these projects 
that we still don't understand. And when it comes to how things play out, we're still in this like huge socioeconomic experiment that Bitcoin kind of started. Smart contracts kept the ball rolling. Ethereum, layer one assets, layer two. The world that we're in today with DAOs, there's still so much that we don't know. So I'm almost wondering if we're doing ourselves a disservice by trying to like nail down what we are too early on. Mm. And you saw, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm kind of just thinking out loud here and I'm, I, I, I think we took steps back. I think 2020 was a huge year for, for, for our industry. We went, we went critical mass potentially, like the world saw what we are and what we're doing. But now we've almost like 2022, 2023, we've kind of regressed. Mm. We've went backwards to figure out what we are, what we're building and how we're building it. Do you feel this at all? Or am I totally off base here? I think that when we span out, you know, 20, 50, yeah. 100 years from now, we won't see the jagged lines of up and down. We'll just see up and to the right, you know, that these these, uh, this volatility will smooth out over a long period of time. And you'll just know like, oh, this was the time of building and growth. Um, I do think what's different about the current environment is that it's not just a crypto, crypto winter we're in. It is a macro like winter and prognoses for the future is like a hundred percent recession. Is oh. And so that's where I think this is, is quite different than, you know, crypto winters two, three years ago. Um, I am encouraged because I still see every day and granted, I live in a bubble. I think we all live in a bubble. It's just about sure. knowing which bubble you're in. And the bubble I'm in are people that are still really building. The hardest part for me as a builder, though, is you lose signal when there's just not enough activity. It's like, what is it that you're doing that's resonating the most and having get, gathering the most traction? It's hard to tell if there's only, call it, a, you know, a hundred potential users of what you're doing versus a thousand versus 10,000 or a hundred thousand. You just don't get as much signal back because the, the market isn't as active. That's what um, keeps me up at night at times is how do we know if we're on the right track? Because there's just a little, there's less activity around, but overall, I'm an optimist. I think you have to be if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, and so I, I feel like this is just all part of the process. Hey guys, I want to take a second and talk to you about our newest sponsor, angelblock.io. It's about that time in the bear market that we actually have to take a look at which projects have taken the do's and the don'ts from all the previous waves, bull and bear markets that we've had and build out real decentralized projects that are going to be successful and take this blockchain and crypto world that we're into the next level. Traditional fundraising is very clunky and traditional investing in crypto is very clunky as well. I know I'm a VC at Drew Adventures. AngelBlock is really, really cool. And it's a new DeFi protocol that's solving not only the issues of fundraising for digital assets, but more compliance, transparency, real decentralization. They have on-chain governance, staking, lending, secondary marketplaces for the trading of tokens, all these different ways that you can actually interact with the startup and the token and the project that you're actually investing in. There's a whole community here. 
AngelBlock is that new compliant platform that's safe and easy to use in order to weed out all the scams. It's so cool. It's built on top of Ethereum, but it's multi-chain by design. <clears throat> They'll also be involved in the mentoring process. There's a phenomenal community that AngelBlock has built. It doesn't cost anything. Go check out the community. Go to their website, angelblock.io. Sign up to their email to stay up to date. You'll have a chance to win some really cool AngelBlock NFTs. And this is only for Untold Stories listeners. Thank you, guys. So you, you went out and you you guys, um, you and, and an amazing team, and, and I encourage folks to, we'll actually have the link here to read your, your Medium blog post launching the company. But you got some amazing, uh, an amazing team together, uh, an amazing group of investors, and you, you launched CoCreate, which is this uh, infrastructure company for decentralized brands or or just regular brands, right? Uh, enables companies to, from things like minting NFTs, launching their own DAOs, fungible tokens, uh, it really kind of like uh, decentralized applications, community growth. You 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 do it all. All the things. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I know. It seems very broad. Um, I think at the heart of what we're doing is, and this gets back to what you said of, you know, like there's DeFi, which is just financial services using a blockchain so that you can take out intermediaries and have more efficient transactions and more liquid markets potentially. And then there's NFTs, which brought culture to crypto in a lot of ways. Although those who are fans of Dogecoin would probably say, hey, culture was already here. But on the NFT side, what gets me so excited is that these top NFT projects, they have the makings of becoming the most powerful consumer brands of the future across media, fashion, entertainment, various forms of IP. And they have created these committed, exclusive communities, right? And now it's like, where do you go from here? How do you scale exclusivity and scarcity? Um, and so the at the core of what we're doing is we're trying to help these NFT projects, other Web3 native brands, eventually maybe existing brands too. We just don't think they'll be the earliest adopters. Use fungible tokens as a way to grow, reward, and engage a larger audience. Because if you want to have mass market success, you're not going to get that with 10,000 PFPs, right? You're going to need a different set of tools that is more scalable, that does allow someone to be that super user, like which I think NFTs are really representative of your super users. But what about the people who you just want to be able to come into the shop and buy a t-shirt because they think it's cool? That's a valuable part of a brand's ecosystem. And right now it's kind of missing how, how these brands can scale and, and expand. And so that's what we're focused on. But the fungible token, to your point, it can encompass a lot of things. It can become the membership into the DAO. Um, it can also be the way in which people vote on future NFT drops. So it's really this powerful tool that crosses over from loyalty to governance. And I think because of that, you get our, our, uh, we are touching so many different aspects of Web3, which again, just excites me because I just love figuring out how things work and how things can come together. You have so many like really cool applications of this. I was talking to my friend who owns a, a dispensary and mm. he was a, a group of them. They have like a bunch of them in one place. And he was, you know, so they have a loyalty program, yep. but then it's a medical dispensary. So there's also a lot of like regulations and data. Then there's also protecting, you know, with HIPAA, you have to keep uh, patients, uh, 
medical information private. And then there's a lot of like regulations around that. Yeah. And then, and that, that prevents discounts and loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. But he was explaining to me how the NFT is actually perfect because it's each user has their own, each customer or patient has their own unique NFT that you can assign loyalty to, but also like purchase history and medical history that then you could assign your doctor to look at. And there's all these different applications of that. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a really cool thing. And because in that situation, you have a potential of a really, really strong community, Yeah. but there's no way to like harness that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that what we understand as loyalty programs right now, I often say they're a little bit more like captivity programs. Yeah. Right? It's like you don't own your points. You don't own, like they say that, oh, you've earned X amount of points. Well, if you earned it, shouldn't it be yours? Shouldn't you be able to decide what you do with it, how you use it? If you don't want it and you could sell it, right? Like I think of airlines and coffee brands uh, are the are two prime examples where we know loyalty points. Like you get so many points um, for flying Delta and then you can use those points to buy um, tickets or go on other vacations. But the problem is when I actually want to transfer those points, it costs me a cent a point. To transfer 40,000 points is $400. Yeah, they're in walled gardens. They're in walled gardens. And I think initially what we'll see is that especially, you know, tying to the current um, regulatory environment where it's a regulation by enforcement approach as opposed to just saying what the rules are and allowing people to follow them. Um, We're going to see a lot of Web3 native brands say, you know what, I still think tokens have a huge potential for me to grow and scale my, my audience and my community, but also reward my community but I'm not at a place where I'm ready for my token to be freely tradable and able to be bought and sold on an exchange because I just don't know how to do that well. I don't know how to do that without fear of the SEC coming after me. And so one of the things that we're working on actually is allowing these Web3 native or other brands to launch a token that's similar to a Web2 loyalty program, but offers the potential to decentralize over time, to make that token freely tradable, to use that token in governance. Like Trader Joe's is an example here where I would love to see this happen, right? Where Trader Joe's allows you to vote on your favorite items because they have this cult following of the people, right? Like the orange chicken is always number one. Everyone loves Trader Joe's. It's not just that. Like Trader Joe's has very specific items that once you're addicted to it, it's like a huge cult following. People move to their new houses to be next to Trader Joe's. And like they love the Trader Joe's taco shells or the Trader Joe's this or that. And it's like, oh my God. And then sometimes they go out. They are no longer the seasonal offerings. And the people are like, how can I get this back? And so Trader Joe's has a way for people to vote. But it's a very primitive voting. Like, what if Trader Joe's had a loyalty program where you got tokens, uh, Joe's tokens, every single time you shopped and based on how much you spent and based on how active you were in voting on various things. And then your vote isn't one person, one vote. It's actually like, hey, I'm your most loyal member and you know this now. And so if I'm saying bring back the orange chicken, then you really should bring back the orange chicken, right? So I'm excited about how loyalty programs can be transformed with tokens because they can just do more. And eventually they have the potential to allow someone to truly own their loyalty and say, you know what, 
this this loyalty what is mine and I don't want to be here anymore. And so I'm going to sell it because we can sell our NFTs, but with our loyalty points in Web2 systems, we can't sell our loyalty. We can just give it up and leave. And so then it was never really ours to begin with. So why are more brands not launching this? I think there's a few reasons. One, I think that uh, established brands struggle to innovate, period. Like, and it's not brands. Established companies struggle to innovate um, and to do things that could disrupt their business practices. Walled gardens, um, it's thought of, you know, sticky, customer stickiness, right? Mm-hmm. Like switching costs. Classic business practices increase the switching costs, make it hard for people to leave. And so to open up those walled gardens can be scary. I think that the likes of Amazon have shown that, you know, actually just serving your customers and making them happy is really good business too. So I just don't think that the big established companies are the ones who are going to be willing to innovate where I think this is going to happen. And we're talking with a lot of them now. So I'm hopeful that in the coming months, you'll start seeing some of this is there are Real small growth oriented brands who are like, hey, I'm out here. I, I'm not at the scale that I want to be. Like, I want to use all the tools in the toolbox. I want to do something new and innovative and different because it's for me, it's not about maintaining the status quo, it's about changing it. Um, and so I think we're going to see them start doing some interesting things. But the reason why we focus on NFT projects and other Web3 brands is they're the ones who already get this, right? Like when nobody's listening, preach to the choir. So we're focused on the choir right now before we go out and try to share our message more broadly. You, um, and there's definitely a lot of like growth in this subject. If you look at um, the top, I, I had a chart last week. It was like the Vans, Nike, Adidas, Disney, all these different companies are making crazy amounts of money right now just doing like NFT drops, not oh. even complicated loyalty programs. And some other yeah. really cool things like token gated commerce. No one's doing that. What is what is token gated commerce? It just means that in order for you to get access to certain um, goods and services that are being sold, you need to hold or have tokens, whether that's an NFT or a fungible token. It can be any token type. Um, it feels counterintuitive, right? Because it's like, why would you ever want to gate your shop? and make it so that people can't come in and buy things. But the idea of exclusivity is really powerful. I think that's what we've seen with NFTs. Um, and in fact, in I'm seeing more and more around me, maybe I'm just more attuned to it, how much people are trying to show, oh, I'm special, I was there, right? Like when you, went, when you were at NFT NYC and you saw everyone with their Ape Fest hoodies, saw it all over town because it was like, oh, I was there, I'm a cool kid. And this is the merch that's only available for that week in New York City if you were at, at if you were at ApeFest. And so I think token gated commerce has a role. I think what's important is brands need a way to create tiers of membership. They need to be able to create the most exclusive membership tier. And that's probably like a, a an NFT. Um, that is only is limited in supply and may have a higher floor price, right? And so I think they they need that, but they also need a way to scale and be able to reach a broader audience. And so that's where our position is that NFTs and fungible tokens, it's not which one, it's how do you use them both within a brand's ecosystem to maximize the reach, the potential, and the rewards that you're able to give from everyone to your 
core community of like brand evangelists on out through the folks who just want to come in and, and get a t-shirt, right? Like there's value in both of those and to be sustainable over time, which is a huge topic right now within NFT projects. What is the future sustainable revenue here, right? Like as much as Web3 sometimes wants to eschew um, profit motives, like if, if these things are going to stick around, it's because they're sustainable, and there's a sustainable path to revenue if you can broaden your audience and create additional sources of revenue. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do and to help with is we don't want to impact someone's exclusivity, the scarcity associated with top tier NFTs. We think that's an incredible, powerful thing that's like the heartbeat of an NFT project, but they need to be able to grow beyond just their brand evangelists to reach a broader audience if they want to become brands that have staying power. So you really think that this is more than a value add or like a complimentary type of thing uh, that a brand would then just launch. You really think that, that not like the NFT or Web3 or DAO that we see today, but some future iteration of what we see today could be a, a true profit driver for, for brands? I think that, I think that, you know, call it 20 years from now, Every brand, they will use different words, just like Reddit isn't saying they have NFTs, but they yeah. will have NFTs, fungible tokens, and DAOs as part of their, their brand's footprint. And that NFTs will be used to represent ultimate membership tiers or you having been at a certain place at a certain time, so a flex, right? Fungible tokens will be used as a way to acquire, retain, and engage um, both their most loyal members, but as well as a broader audience to get people to come into their universe. And DAOs will be used as a way for brands to do better surveys and understand what people actually care about by asking them questions they actually want to answer. Like, what's the next flavor? Is it mango? Or is it strawberry? I would want to answer that if I really care about, call it Ciroc, coming out with a new uh, vodka flavor, <laughs> right? Like, I want to have uh, uh, oh, I grew up in, you might've picked up on this already. I grew up in the Southeast and we had this sweet tea flavored vodka, right? Like that oh, was something. Uh, Deep Eddie's, what's it called? It was, um, I think it was Firefly. Firefly. Then, oh, Firefly. Yes. Yeah. I've had that before. Right. And it's like, there are these things that have these, these cultish communities around them. Brands want to know that they want to be close. Like there's a way to accomplish that using the tools of web three that are just fundamentally superior tools to what we have today. And brands will figure out how to do that. And it's going to start with the Web3 native brands because they are on the cusp of that adoption and they get it now. Um, but it will eventually expand beyond that. Um, and so I'm excited for, for that future. And I'm also excited about what that will mean for individuals because it's not about captivity anymore, right? Like if you're using an ERC-20 standard and you're allowing people to actually claim and own their points, um, you can make it such that they get to decide how those points are used when they want to no longer be part of the brand ecosystem and then sell that loyalty because guess what? They actually earned it and owned it and it was theirs. Guys, I am so excited to talk about our newest presenting sponsor, SafePal. SafePal is an all-in-one solution. You got a beautiful hardware wallet. You have this amazing fireproof cipher 
you got a mobile wallet, an extension wallet similar to MetaMask. You're talking about an all-in-one solution for all of your crypto needs. Founded in 2018, SafePal is a Binance Labs-backed, Singapore-based company, uh, the venture arm, where their mission is to make crypto secure and simple for everyone. You got cross-chain swapping, trading services, and more. SafePal supports over 40 different blockchains. I mean, check this out. Look at this. If you back up your private seed in this beautiful metal SafePal backup here and you keep it in your safe, fires or water or nothing degrading over time, you should not be backing up your crypto on pieces of paper. I mean, look at this. Look at the S1 here. It's so cool. This is the hardware wallet. You're talking, I'm used to using the Trezor or the Ledger wallet, but SafePal is a lot better because not only do you get the hardware wallet and the backup cipher, but you also get the mobile wallet, the uh, extension on your Google Chrome or whatever Firefox you use. So it all works together. You don't have to worry about man in the middle attacks and everything like that. You can go to safepal.com, use the coupon code Charlie, and you'll get any of these amazing products the extension wallet is free, the mobile wallet is free, the hardware wallet and the backup are really, really well priced. It's all super safe and secure. And I love it. I mean, there's no other way you should be using your crypto than SafePal. I wonder what that would be like being able to sell sell your loyalty or have like a loyalty marketplace. Like that's another yeah. conversation, but rewinding it for a second. Um, Token economics, uh, going back to tokens for a second, like the, the economics of launching a token, distributing, mm -hmm. having a decentralized program that doesn't like benefit certain parties over other parties. What are some things that, uh, what are some positive ways that people can be doing token economics now uh, that's different from how it's been done before? And is there a relationship between that and, and the DAO? Yeah. Token economics, I love this topic because it's so interdisciplinary, right? It's like, how do we come up with everything from our own monetary policy to our own loyalty and reward system, yeah. our own governance mechanism? And by it's the way, it's the same thing. Like, it's really hard. And that's also the part that's, I think, invigorating is you have to, you need to learn a lot in order to do this well. And, and frankly, I don't think we have a ton of good models yet, but that's just indicative of we're early and we're still learning and testing. Um, when I'm talking with projects about their token economic structure, it begins with like, what are you trying to accomplish? Because tokens can do almost anything. And they're really great at creating certain incentive mechanisms. They can reward certain behaviors. You can even, even structure them to punish certain behaviors. So what is the community or the ecosystem that you want to form? And now let's use that to determine, okay, how can people earn the token and how can people use the token? Once you go past that initial decision around, okay, total token supply, what's the allocation across the team, potential investors, contributors, your community, once you get past those first-time quantitative decisions of supply and allocation and potentially vesting, then it really comes to, okay, what is the economy underneath and how do these flows of tokens work? What is going to be the ongoing supply of tokens entering the market? where people can either earn or purchase them if it's a freely tradable token? And then what are the ways that they would be able to use or redeem them? And we break this up into categories of what we call token rewards and token utility, where rewards is how you get the token. Utility is why you want to have it and what you can do with it. Ah, uh. Yeah, because a lot of people conflate. They just call token utility for everything. 
And it's like, no, if I earned the token, that's not utility. If I got some tokens because I created an account or I filled out a user profile, yeah. or I bought an NFT, that's not utility. Those are rewards. Taking is not utility people either. Yeah. Exactly. And so like, this is how I got it, but now why do I want it? And so we think a lot of people have put time and effort into considering how do people get the token, but not why do people want the token? And why should that token have value so that people aren't going to just dump it, but they actually want to hold it because maybe it represents token gated access, right? Like access to certain goods, services, events. Maybe it's the way that you can buy certain things. And maybe you can only buy it in that way. Maybe it's the way that you vote, but vote on things you actually care about, right? Like I think DeFi protocol voting um, and governance is an incredibly important area. And I don't think that it's the mass market approach that's going to be used by brands because most people don't want to vote on, okay, what are the liquidity processes when something happens that's bad and we need to exit? And like, that's just not something that I want to spend my weekend voting on. But You're right. I, do. I don't. I so so like that actually is a great conversation topic. So I love voting. Um, I love the the act of voting. Like I just did it yesterday. We got the voting card here in Florida, and I spent like two hours with my mother in law, and we sat there and we went through every specific thing, and we discussed. You know, because Florida they throw a lot of things on the amendments, and there's a lot of there's like 41 voting items on the ballot for November 8th. I don't wow. know, but others are 41. That's a lot. Uh, we have a lot of direct democracy, but a lot of people don't want to like you, you, how cool would it be if we had like delegated voting Ooh. in, in, you know, when it comes to certain things, because yeah. turnout, the yeah. lack of turnout is how candidates win. So if you want to go win an election and you have a certain amount of money, you can work the turnout numbers and you can, you know, where the folks live that turn out to vote. And so you just have to like, you know, talk to them. Whereas if we had 80% of people voting in a specific place, we'd have much better democracy. But unfortunately, as, as you and I have seen with voting laws in the past two years, is they're making it just every six months, there are new laws to make it more and more difficult for people to vote because they're trying to like make the, the voting pool more finite because then they know who to market to. Yeah. This is not new. This is information that everyone knows. How can DAOs change that? Yeah. Well, I mean, first I would just say that I totally agree with, you know, there's a lot of the voting is around uh, our voting strategies are around like, how can we fire up the base versus actually convey our message to a wired or audience because yeah. it's about turnout. And so my husband and I, we were watching um, television the other night and um, a political ad came on and he was like, who is this? This is just speaking to people who already agree with them. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. They're trying to get them upset so that you go out and vote. Um, and so I fully agree with you there. I think that in order one, I will say, I, I would not say that I am the governance guru. Um, so I will state my personal opinion and what I think about this, but I recognize that there are people that have better, more informed opinions than I do. When it comes to, um, to Dow voting, I think there's a few in real life examples that can, that have relevance here. The first is what you kind of mentioned friction, right? So yep. you and your mom, you went, you waited two hours, you did all this research, you stood in line, like friction, whether it's a conversion funnel for a brand's uh, acquisition funnel, 
or whether it's voting, if there is friction, people will drop out of the funnel. And so how can we reduce friction? Right now, voting is not easy. It's like you go to a forum to understand the details that links out to a Google Doc, and then you've got all these people making uh, comments and suggestions, then it's being updated, and you link to Snapshot to do the vote there. It's like, it's everywhere. And so it's a high friction, even though it's entirely online. Um, The next thing is like awareness and understanding, which right now, I think it's difficult to to spend a a limited amount of time and understand the depth of the issue you need in order to be able to vote. And I think a lot of that is because much of our voting experience within crypto has been for DeFi protocols. And so these are like really important decisions that have financial implications on how the protocol should work. And so it is very detailed and there are going to be like technocrats, like experts who will have informed opinions here. And then there are a lot of people who are like, I don't know, why should I be the one who's opining on this specific issue? It's a balance. Right. It's a balance. Um, And maybe the voting is like, to your point, the delegation of who do I think is an expert that I want to lend my voice to? And so that's that awareness and creating levels of of voting that allow people to participate um, sufficiently, but don't require them to be experts in everything. And then the, the third thing that I would say is that right now voting isn't fun. No, it's definitely not. We're human beings and we do, you know, there's a a number of us who do civil service, right. And who try to do the right thing and go out, but that's still something that is like, I'm making an effort. I make an effort to eat spinach. I don't like spinach, but I do it. I don't do it as much as I should. Like if spinach were candy, I would eat it a lot more. (laughs) True story. It's like, how do you make voting fun? And I think that's where if we address friction, if we address awareness, and if we make voting fun, you're going to see higher turnout and you're going to see higher participation levels. Um, So that would be my generalized guidance. I recognize this is a very difficult issue and a lot of people are focused exclusively on it um, and trying to make uh, strides forward here. The... uh... I love, I love, we can talk for hours on, on voting. It's like my favorite subject. Um, but I wanted to talk on one more topic. I wanted to touch on gaming because if you look mm-hmm. at like Crypto Slam, if you look there, you see that fan tokens and NFTs related to like brands are what's selling right now and where the numbers are. A sport fan tokens and then games, games and then the fan tokens, fans around the games and the gaming. You working with any games? Are there any uh, any cool like Web three game designs that you want to talk about? So um, I don't know when this will come out, but we're announcing um, we're our our protocol is live on testnet now, but we're going to have our um, front end application available and open to the public on eleven fifteenth and November fifteenth, and that's we'll when probably we'll be releasing around that date. So oh, amazing, yeah. good timing. Yeah, like the eleventh maybe. Oh, okay, Monday or Tuesday. I think. Well, and we'll be announcing our first partner at that time, which is actually in the gaming space. And what I love about gaming as a use case for tokens is games have inherent utility, right? Yeah. And so it's like, hey, the game is the utility. And how can this token be used to supercharge that utility? I think where where gaming, crypto gaming has gotten it wrong is when the game actually isn't great. And the token is just the financial, um, is just the financial speculation and people 
play the game only to get the token, that's when things get wonky. There's a term for that. I forgot what it is, but there's a term when people play games, there's a there's like a, a watershed moment, like a once people are more once there's like a dial, oh, damn, I have to it's like an episode like a hundred episodes ago. We had this guy who develops games. And he said once it's like a it's like a lever, right? Once mm-hmm. it goes too too much into the people are playing just for money, then the game's over. It's yeah. dead. You lost yeah. you lost your game. You can't get it back. End of show. Yeah. And and that's the the I think the risk and what we've seen sometimes and why the certain like OG gamers hate crypto games is because they're yeah. like, this isn't fun. This is finance bros coming in and ruining my game. <laughs> and but if you have a great game, what what whether it's uh, fungible tokens or NFTs, what tokens allow you to do is they allow you again to own your in-game assets and they present the potential. It doesn't exist yet. A lot of the technology needs to be built, but to actually take those in-game assets to sell them within a closed ecosystem or even to take them with you outside into other ecosystems. And I think that is awesome because people spend a lot of money on games. I don't think they're trying to make a profit necessarily. Like that shouldn't be the goal for fun, but for fun and also to be like, Hey, this is my sword. And I, and you know what? I don't want this sword anymore. I want the shield. And so I'm going to sell the sword. Like that's, I think uh, some of the exciting opportunities that allow allow for individuals to own more of what they're engaging with. And in general, I feel like that's part of the promise of Web3 is we become owners, not just users. Like I actually really don't like the term users within product and tech. It's like, who are our users? That that feels like a very one directional relationship as opposed to who are who are some of the owners that participate in this ecosystem and are adding value to the ecosystem. And within gaming, I think you see a lot of people who are mutually benefiting the company um, and that game developer, as well as the community and everyone else who's playing that game. It's so cool because it just gets me excited again for even though we've had like 10 years of stuff, the next 10 years of stuff is just going to be even better. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. I used to say that no one knows which way is up right now in Web3 and crypto. It's like, is this way up? Is that way up? Is that no, like, we we know. all over the place? But that's what makes it fun, right? Because we're figuring this out. Um, and I think there's going to be some really great big businesses that come out of this. And there's going to be a lot of failures and a lot of learnings. And that's just all part of the process. I love the, I'm also like, I have put my VC hat on and I sit, you know, on the pitches and everything and, and the investment committee of our fund. Uh, I'm, you know, in every, uh, in every meeting. And it's funny, it's funny kind of watching the discomfort of like mm-hmm. traditional finance people who yeah. are members of our fund, like the, the, like not understanding still like what we're doing, why, how, and all of this, like what way is up. I, it's still so early. Yeah. And the day that this podcast is no longer necessary is when we've hit mainstream. Mm-hmm. We don't have internet podcasts anymore. I mean, you kind of do. You have some car podcasts, but it's not like, well, maybe I'll take that back. There are car podcasts that talk about like the wheels and the infrastructure around that. So, okay. So it'll (laughs) become more of a niche podcast. But Tara, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Charlie. I really enjoyed our conversation.